Hey everybody, talkingbook.pub is a non-profit audiobook publisher of independent literature. We are located in Asheville, North Carolina, and because we are a non-profit, uh, donations and help from people like you who love these books and love these recordings really helps a lot. So if you want to get involved, donate to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash talkingbook, or go to our website, talkingbook.pub, and read about our mission, send us an email, give us a call, whatever you want to do. But enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hi, everybody. This is Chris Hartram, and you're, whist- list- you're whistling? No, you're not. You're listening to the Talking Book Podcast, um, and this is the new episode with L. Nash, Animals Eat Each Other, uh, which is a novel from... Uh, from Zank Books. You know, what's funny is I've never actually known how to say that properly. I love them. Uh, We've worked with them. I've talked to them uh, at, you know, book shows or whatever. And uh, I still don't really, I'm not 100% if that's how you say it. I think it's Zank. I've heard people say Zonic. Um, But if you're listening to Zank, I still love you even if I messed it up. And if I got it right, then and there, there you go. Here's to us. But, uh, but yeah, we, so I'm talking to, to L. Nash, who wrote Animals Eat Each Other. Uh, and we recorded that with a narrator named Casey Hollowell, and it sounds completely awesome. And L's really cool, and I'd never really spoken with her on the um, in person or on the phone, rather. Uh, mostly just, you know, email correspondence. But we had an awesome chat just now about um, having kids and writing and her book. Uh, and so why don't you uh, listen to it? You're going to like it. Hello? Hey, is this Elle? Yeah. Hey, how's it going? It's Chris. It's good. How are you? Pretty good. Not too bad. Um, we are, we're recording right now as we speak. Sweet. What's, uh, what's going on with the little one there? She is eating a maple flavored biscuit and some avocado right now. Oh man, that's pretty good. I can actually, I can hear my, um, my three-year-old upstairs crying about something. No, no. (laughs) So we're both kind of in like a very similar boat. El Nash, Chris Hartram with the kids, you know, trying to... (laughs) trying to do it yeah how old is she she is nine and a half months this week oh wicked wow that's cool yeah, yeah. i have i have a uh um three-year-old and a, and a four-month-old wow yeah that's awesome i know i um i want more kids but it's funny because like with her i have all these like like really cute sweet moments where we're like relaxing or something and I'm just like god it's not going to be like this with the second kid it's going to be like taking care of a toddler and a newborn it's so hard no I mean that makes total sense you know oddly for us uh the the weird way that it worked out was and I'm, I'm definitely not going to make this just a baby talk podcast but uh <laughs> but uh just because we're both in it it makes sense but um my uh my first one max he's uh he's he was he's three now so he's like a nut bar like a like an asshole you know yeah uh, you know bless his heart and then the second uh, <laughs> the second one woody he's um 
he's uh, only four months and he's like a, a perfect angel uh, in comparison, you know, relative to a three-year-old. So yeah. the way that we've be, been influenced and we know it's completely false is that, oh, when you have another child, it's just the much sweeter version. So it's like we have this shot, uh, like a like a dose of cuteness and sweetness and innocence again. So <laughs> it's, prob- it's probably like somehow like evolutionary where you're like, oh, the new baby is so perfect. I'll just have another new baby again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. It's like uh, someone was telling me, it's crazy how quickly you forget all the hard stuff. And it is, it's like a, it must be like a biological trick. <laughs> you just have more babies. I mean, it has to be a biological trick. And I've heard that, uh, for, um, you know, for a woman and please correct me if I'm wrong. So I don't know shit cause I'm a guy, but f- like for my partner, you know, she said that she blacked out somehow the actual pain. And then we, you know, I've heard that like that's, that happens from, from the actual birth itself, as opposed to you know, just raising the kid. Um, so that sounds like it's like it grouped in that same category of like a evolutionary trick. Yeah. I wonder, cause I had um, a friend tell me too, she was like, it's quickly how fast that you forget the pain and stuff. And it's funny. Cause when I do look back on it, I'm just like, it wasn't that bad. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> obviously, like when you're in the moment and stuff like that, um, it's definitely more of a trial. Right. So, yeah, but I mean, like, the, you know, the human body is built to withstand, well, I mean, for the most part, built to withstand the process of birth and stuff, and, like, I mean, it's dangerous, don't get me wrong. Um, I think a lot of women still die sure. during the process of childbirth, yeah. Yeah, probably but, in, like, different um, other countries even more so, yeah, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. We definitely felt tricked. Like after we got pregnant with the second one, we were like, wait a second. Why, why did we do that? Oh shit. (laughs) That's funny. Classic. So, uh, where are you right now? Um, I am, I'm in my house in Northwest Arkansas and it's supposed to be like 101 degrees day. And, um, I'm just really grateful I have air conditioning. (laughs) Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you from there originally? Is that where you've been the whole time? No, um, the last place I lived was Denver, and I lived there since 2009. Um, but my husband and I, we had some friends in this area, um, and he has, like, he had some family, like, in Missouri or something like that, so he was familiar with the area, too. And we just wanted to get out of the city, so. Right. Um, yeah, that's great. A, a similar move that we did where we went from uh, uh Tokyo and then New York and then to the mountains of North Carolina, like that piece that, um, that you wrote recently getting, uh, getting away from the city to, you know, to go into the woods, so to speak. Yeah. Um, that's awesome that you were in Tokyo. Do you guys like live there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I did with my, uh, with a bunch of my friends for, uh, for a while before moving to New York and then I didn't like New York as much. And then <clears throat> decided to get back to um to to Carolina, which is where I actually met my partner in in uh, in college back in the day. Oh, that's awesome! Um, I feel like Tokyo would be way cooler than New York. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, there's probably a lot of people who would yell at me for this, but I mean, I mean, obviously, I was obsessed with. It. I stayed there too long, so for me, going to uh, to New York City was just like a uh, like a phony baloney version of it kind of like, you know, similar large city, but just, it didn't feel right. It just, 
wasn't uh, wasn't the same, but you know, you get obsessed with stuff and you build it up in your head and then stuff doesn't match up to it. So, I mean, it's probably not so much New York as much as my uh, psychosis, you know? I don't know. It's kind of funny you say that because um, cause my husband grew up in Japan for like the first 13 years of his life. Oh, wow. Crazy. And when I, yeah, and I went to, to New York to do a reading in Brooklyn like this year and it was my first time going and he was just like, yeah, New York is just like a less cool Tokyo. Like that's pretty much what he was saying to me. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I mean, about it. that's exactly, I've said that sentence many a times. Yeah, it's like sounds, yeah. sounds snobby, but secretly it's very true. Your husband knows that's it. That's really funny. Yeah, that's funny. 13 years. Wow. Okay. Where were you born? I was born in England, um, in North Yorkshire, and uh, my dad was in the military. So um, my mom was a British waitress. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> that sounds yeah, that sounds it's really awesome. cute. And then we moved to America when I was like two. So, do they have a uh, a cool story about like? Did she wait on him? Is that how they met? Yeah, I think that is how they met. And then um, all I know is that. They, I think they were dating for like two years and then they got married at the courthouse and I was born like three weeks later. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it, yeah. That's kind of funny. You and your, um, <clears throat> you and your husband were both born in different countries. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, um, he was in the military too. So I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just because I grew up in that sort of culture and kind of understood it more and made more sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I would, so. um, my, uh, both my kids are, were born in the, um, in the States, but they're real little. And because I, uh, you know, lived in a different place for a long time, that's like one of my main missions is to make sure that my kids at some point in their life that we live in another country. Yeah, I know. That'd be really cool. I would love to do that too. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Maybe we'll, we'll talk, we'll, uh, talk to your husband <laughs> and you, we'll just figure it out. We'll figure the whole yeah. thing out. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, obviously we're talking because of, um, you know, your book, you know, animals eat each other. And we recorded the audio with Casey Hollowell and everything like that. And, um, so after you and I chat, we're going to play, you know, a chunk, uh, like a little excerpt of the book, you know, but I wanted to ask you just in general, we've, you and I've been corresponding and going back and forth for a long time, you know, for the, the whole process of getting the book and, you know, talking to the publisher, Zank and, and, uh, but, you know, I've never really, this is the first time we've spoken, so it's so cool for me to be able to have the opportunity to ask you, you know, just, you know, what's, what's, where did this book start? Where did it come from? Yeah, um, so this book started in a writing class led by Ray Goriage, the poet in, um, Cal- from California, I think like Davis, California. And it was a short story, but the more that I kept working on it, the more I felt like it just, it needed to be expanded. Um, and so, so that's what I did. Basically, like I, I was working also with Tom Sandbar at the time and he kept saying, you know, like these are parts here where you can like really slow down and expand this part of the story. Like what about this part of the story? And I just kept like working on it and working on it. So I was like, I think this is really just more of like a novel <laughs> rather than a short story. Right. Yeah, definitely. Would it, uh, what, so how long ago, like year wise, did you start working on this book? I think it was 2013. I think that's when I started. Okay. So it was kind of like, uh, you probably were working on other stuff in between and just kind of working on this and like, just kind of grinding it out and kind of getting it to the point that it is now. Yeah. Um, 
it was like, I think like every two weeks I would meet with Tom and I would try to have like something new that I had worked on, you know, so it was like slowly over this process. Um, and I was working on other stuff too. Like I was working on, um, some short stories and I did a chat, like two chat books in between, um, and stuff like that too. So... It's funny because uh, you and I are talking today about this book and the, the audio book, obviously. But so my partner upstairs, Danny, I don't know if you follow her or anything, um, but she uh, she's a designer and she does like all the art and graphic design for talking book and like designs yeah. when we do an original cover. And she's um, she hadn't read this when it came out or listened to it. So what, right when I was coming down here to record, she was making pancakes for our son, holding the book, like reading it. She's almost <laughs> almost done with it. Oh, that's awesome. It's just a cool visual, too, because the beautiful cover. She's, like, flipping pancakes, reading animals eat each other. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I do follow. I think I follow her on Instagram. Oh, cool. Yeah, she's but, a, she's a yeah. big fan of yours, huge fan of yours right now. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was an awesome. It's it, The recording is awesome, too. What do you think about Casey's interpretation of the book? Dude, I love it, and I just love that, like, uh, Part of her repertoire was that she did voiceovers for anime, you yeah, said? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I just felt like that was super cool. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought, I mean, first first of all, her voice, I read the book first, obviously, and then I listened to it, but her voice was so uh, appropriate for the way that I imagined, like, um, you know, the, the, uh, the narrator's uh, kind of... I guess like pace and, and, and voice in my head, of course, as a reader could have, I'm sure it was different in, in yours, but with uh, when I, we saw like her, all of her weird, cool TV credits for like anime shows, I was like, hell yeah, this is, this is the one. Yeah. That's super awesome. Um, Danny wanted me to ask you just about, um, just the characters in general, like, uh, you know, Lilith and Matt and Francis and all that, just like, um, you know, like, those characters, how close are they to to real, real humans? And you know, how you know how much is it? It's an annoying question, I know, but like, um, you know, how much of this is like something that is coming from you know real people, or how much of it is just like you're spinning these incredible characters? Yeah, um, I think it's like a mix of both. Um, like a lot of the characters are all they're composite characters of different people or different experiences that I've had or experiences that like people maybe I've known have had. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the main character, when I wrote her, <laughs> you can hear the baby having a lot no, I, I love that. I mean, so my, my audio <laughs> engineer, like he'll want to edit that out, but there's no way. Hell no. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, so when I was writing Lilith, I was really writing to like the, the person that I think I needed to know when I was 19 or um, just like something that I would have wanted to read or read when I was that young, you know, to feel like less alone. I think that's really what I had in mind when I was creating her. Right. Um, because I feel like as a woman, developing friendships is so, it's difficult because, you know, I or a lot of people I know have like developed friendships really quickly with women. And, um, I think as a bisexual woman, it tends to be like, sometimes things can get really intimate, but then things can go sour. Like this is fast just because the feelings that you have are so intense. Sure. And yeah, so I really wanted to just like examine that. And I, that's really what I was writing to when I was thinking of how these characters are related to each other. 
That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly uh, effective. That the the, uh, the the book's definitely been one of our our favorite things in a while, and and, and it's uh, it's it's definitely uh, something super special to all of us personally and and professionally. Just as as Talking Book, the the publisher, you know. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let me um. Before I let you go, let me just ask you a couple quick questions, like just yeah. re- rewinding, going back to uh, to your past. Like, when when did you start writing? When did you start figuring out you wanted to do that? Um, when I started writing in general, you mean? Yeah, just kind of like you know the the usual classic. Like, when when did all this nonsense start? Um, that's a really good question. I think I always wanted to be a writer when I was younger, like I wrote a lot of poetry in high school and that sort of thing. Um, and I had like written stories when I was like a little kid. Um, but I didn't really take getting published seriously until, until like 2013. Cause it was just like, not something I had ever thought of. I didn't know anything about how people got books published. Like I didn't know about agents. I didn't even know like what literary magazines were. Right. Um, there was like, there's like this whole like business side to writing that I didn't understand. And, um, I took, um, Tom Sandbar's original dangerous writing workshop in 2013. And that was when I learned a little bit more about it. And then I also, uh, I read this book by Ariel Gore. And I think the title is how to become a famous writer before you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really just great, like forthcoming title. Yeah. I know. I know. (laughs) I wish I I I could ask her questions too, but maybe next time. I I know. She's like so close to talking to you. I feel like it's going to become words soon. Hell yeah. But, um, that book was really interesting because it showed me a different way of like looking at how to approach the business aspect of writing, which I think that a lot of people don't do. Um, and from there, that's kind of like when I was like, okay, I do want to take this seriously. Like I'm going to extend my reach, like read as much as I can, um, network, you know, start my literary magazine, get into literary magazines, edit for literary magazines and that sort of thing. And when that happened, um, I feel like the whole, culture of literature really opened up to me rather than being the singular person who has this idea of being a writer. Cause I feel like, you know, that, that is usually how people or how I saw it. Like when I was younger, it was like, Oh, I'm just like a writer. I'm just going to write and someone's going to maybe be my genius or whatever. That, that's <laughs> and a, that's... I feel like it's really easy to not take yourself seriously enough when you're thinking. That way. No, I mean that, that's so absolutely, um, what I think probably it happens to a lot of people, but it definitely happened to me as well, where there was this entire like uh, vapor period of just like head in the clouds, no actual path or, uh, you know, plan. And it's like, I'm a writer. I will be a writer. And you're just like thinking of famous dead writers and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be one of those people. But you're not actually really doing anything like to get to get to the next step and then once you crack that code that it's an actual things with actual steps like any career then it, it suddenly becomes much more uh realistic and not just like this like you're going to be a superhero one day right yeah no I definitely agree with that it was also that was also when I started um I started taking a lot of workshops which I felt like was really important because you know 
it's really easy to be afraid of criticism and like want to think that your work is the best that it can be, but like you can't improve unless you're doing the work basically. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that's important to bring up too. I'm glad you, um, that you said that because I feel like, uh, you know, it, it's pretty trendy right now and for obvious reasons, it's popular to like make fun of MFAs or make fun of, uh, you know, workshop culture or something like that. Um, if you, I don't know, have you ever been to AWP or anything like that? I've never been, but I know the, like the argument that you're talking about. Right. It's, about it's like a popular in our community, like, you know, thing to say or argument or conversation. But I feel like, you know, somebody like yourself saying what you just said is also really important because it, it brings up that sure there are issues with that that culture, but it's also extremely helpful and important to so many writers in terms of getting better. So, yeah, no, definitely. I agree with that. Like I, um, I always felt like an MFA was going to be the only way that I could become a writer. Like when I first was exploring like those options and I do have my issues with the culture in the, in the sense, like my issue is only about accessibility. Like it's just, it's so expensive unless you're fully funded and those fully funded programs, <laughs> Those fully funded programs are harder to get into than Harvard. Right. Sometimes. Right. So, yeah. so like my only, yeah, like my only gripe with MFA programs is, is the accessibility portion of it. Like I do love the workshop style that like Iowa Writers Workshop does. Like I love getting feedback from people and from students because the best way that people learn is through like ap- applying those, those skills, you know? Right. Um, and, like, I definitely advocate for workshop-style, like, writing processes and stuff. And plus, you never know, like, you learn more about what you like when you read stuff that you don't like. Like, when you're in a workshop. Like, if you're reading someone's work and you're just like, I really hate this person's, like, short story, you really have to examine why you don't like it, what you would do to make it better. And that way you can become a better self-editor objectively, you know? Oh, I like that. that Yeah, that's that's a good. I've never heard that that perspective. That's a good. uh, That's that's good. I like that. Yeah, very cool. Do you? uh, When's the last time you took a workshop? The last time I took a workshop was. A really good question. It was probably in 2016 because that's the last time I had a really nice paying job. (laughs) Right. So, I've been taking a lot of lit reactor classes, which were pretty awesome. Oh, I've always wondered about those. So you, those are cool? Yeah, yeah, I like them a lot. I think it was one of the last ones I took was with um, Lydia Yaknovich, and I had taken one of hers online, and I took one in person, too, and they were both pretty awesome. Oh, that's great. Lydia, way to go. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow, really cool. So what, what's uh, what's going on now? What are you working on right now? Um, I am working on... The next novel, um, and I'm also working on a collection of short stories, so I'm just kind of like switching back and forth between the two right now. Yeah, no, that's cool. Let me, um, just because this applies to to me as well and probably a a hell of a lot of other writers, but, uh, you know, kind of classic question uh, in terms of kids and writing, but like, what's that balance like over the past nine or so months? Yeah, um, you know... It's hard, but at the same time, like, when I was working a traditional 9-to-5 job, um, 
when I was working at traditional nine to five job, I was like lamenting about not having enough time to write and like how frustrating it was to not have that time. Um, like it, you know, it's just hard. And now like with a baby, I feel similarly where I'm like always worried about the time. Like there's always this voice in the back of my head. I feel like that's telling me I'm going to die before I finish the work I need to finish. <laughs> I, th- I think that every single day. Totally. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Like it's tough. And so I'm just like, you have to get this done. And I put a lot of pressure on myself, but at the same time, um, having a kid, I feel like has made me a lot more efficient at, at writing when I have to, like, because I have limited time now, when I do sit down to write in the morning, um, I, I write, like, I don't sit and think about the outcome. Yeah. I just like do what I have to do. And, and honestly, like, um, I'm, you know, I'm happier for that. I do wish I had sometimes more like longer uninterrupted times to write, but I mean, that'll come as she gets older and like on the weekends, um, in the mornings and stuff like my husband will like take over so I can like sit in the office for like three hours and like not think about anything else, you know? So yeah. it works out. That, that, that's, that's, uh, that, that's exactly how I feel. And the, uh, you know, my, the support of my partner, Danny, I mean, allows me to still write and obviously work on stuff like talking book. And, uh, and another funny thing about <clears throat> the, the pressure cooker ideas, uh, that that's all that's helped me. I think it helps a lot of people because the, when it's like, Hey, I have eight hours today just to do whatever, because I'm 26 and whatever. And, uh, and then, then, then I don't really do anything, but then it's like, if there's 45 minutes that I have to write, I'm like, Holy shit. I just got like, I just like churned a bunch of stuff out because the, the heat was on. Yeah, no, totally. Like, um, I usually hate talking about novels and process, but <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, I just broke 50,000 words on this new book. So like there, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, like, you know, a lot of people fear having kids will like hinder their artistic work. And I just feel like, you know, if you want to get the work done, you will get it done and you just have to focus. And it's hard. I mean, there's obstacles in the way of art making all the time, you know, of course, but, yeah, there's always something. Yeah, um, but I was always afraid of that, too, of, like, not being able to do it. And I'm actually like, oh, wow, like, I'm actually, like, getting this first draft done, so. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, everybody, you heard it here first. Uh, Ellen Nash and Chris Hartram both say... Uh, have kids um, because it's going to make you a better artist. And we're not just saying that because we because misery loves company. We we mean it. For, <laughs> we mean it for sure. Uh-huh. Well, there's also the added aspect too. the last thing I'll say about it, there's also the added detail that before I had kids, I was far less responsible and much more likely to, I don't know, go get hammered somewhere and like, you know, have a slightly more casual devil may care existence and so that sometimes hindered writing just as much if not more than having kids yeah I think that's that can be true to a degree because when I was drinking a lot I was a lot less productive because of course being hungover is not ideal for like a creative brain like I think that sometimes that type of like those kinds of shows can contribute to know like what you're writing about like if those are the things that you write about like those struggles of human existence but yeah i'm definitely a lot more um straight laced these days (laughs) yeah totally okay well we figured it out everybody have kids now um very good (laughs) 
So yeah, so that, that, that's awesome. Um, so after this, uh, we're gonna, you know, like I said, play an excerpt from from our recording. Um, Animals eat each other. El Nash and Casey Hollowell. Do you have any uh, any uh, any suggestions or anything you'd you'd like to be played from the audio? Um, no, I'm gonna let you pick. <laughs> okay, I love it. I love it. Well, I hope uh, I hope um, that. Uh, you know, maybe we can record something else of yours in the future and maybe we can uh, we can all meet up and hang one day. Yeah, that would be awesome. Are you guys going to AWP uh, next year in Portland? I think so. We didn't go to the previous one, but we were at um, we were at the uh, the one in uh, downtown L.A. Uh, before that. Um, yeah. So I think we're going to the one in Portland. I'm not 100 percent sure, but are you going to go? I think I'm going to try and go. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's like with the kids and everything, it's a try, but I mean, so many like yourself, so many, you know, badass writers and publishers that we work with are there and everyone's hanging. So I love going. Yeah. I know. And Portland is so awesome. Um, it's just the travel with kids is the hard part because I mean, even, I mean, for you, like, I feel like it's like over days travel like on a plane even just to get there definitely yeah I feel like the three-year-old would be my real the bigger issue because he would like lose it where I feel like um Woody could probably just be subdued a la uh Danny's uh, breast whereas Max Mm -hmm. Max would just flip and I'll probably like maybe go Max with the grandparents then Woody come with us if we figure it out I think yeah we'll see We'll, we'll 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 try to make it happen um and hopefully uh, the the kids will meet, and then they'll be best friends, too. I know. That'd be awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah, have an, have an awesome day, and uh, thanks so much again for, for working on, on this with us. It was really a pleasure, and like I said, I hope we, we, we do it again. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much, Chris. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. All right, well, that was my conversation with L. Nash, Animals Eat Each Other. Now, as per usual, we're going to play an excerpt from the audiobook recording, Animals Eat Each Other, narrated by Casey Hollowell from Talking Book and Dezank Books. From Dust That summer, I worked at Radio Shack in a dull strip mall, three miles from my mother's place in Lamplighter Mobile Home Park. We moved to Lamplighter when I was eight, after my father died from sudden liver complications, leaving us with a garage-sized inheritance of 1970s knickknacks, old photos, and debt. My mother was a caretaker for the elderly, and although she worked through most holidays, her income alone couldn't pay the mortgage on the Rambler they had bought when they first moved to Colorado Springs. All summer, My mother had been prodding me to find a job. I'd just graduated high school and had no immediate plans for college, instead investing my time in a growing obsession with snorting Percocet. I was 13 the first time I thumbed one of my mother's pills. A Vicodin. Only one because I feared she might notice it was missing. I remember carrying it back to my bedroom like a fragile tooth, and I placed it under my pillow with the same excitement that used to come from exchanging body parts for quarters. I brushed my teeth and washed my face in the hallway bathroom, and when I came back, the pill was still there. I swallowed it with a glass of water, and at first felt very nauseous. 
Then a warmth spread from my belly into the rest of my limbs, and I felt comforted in a way I hadn't in a long time. It reminded me of a moment when I'd woken from a nightmare as a child and crawled into bed between both my parents, cradled by the largeness of their bodies and the smell of their sweat, both sweet and stale, like old cigarettes. Jenny and I stood behind the linoleum counter at the store, waiting on customers. Jenny was a girl I knew from middle school who had worked at Radio Shack since her sophomore year and got me a job, too. The summer had faded into cool evenings on the cusp of autumn, and wispy locks of Jenny's pastel blue-tipped hair fell from her beanie. Poised between the gray squares of economy carpet and the stacked electronics, she was the brightest thing in the store. That's when Matt and Francis walked in. Jenny took them immediately to the only corner of the store where the camera couldn't see them. Matt was tall, his head shaved so close to the scalp I could see the lines in his cranium. Frances stood next to him, her fingers wrapped delicately between his own. With her other hand, she held the tips of her long hair to her mouth. She constantly checked the reaction on Matt's face as Jenny spoke to them, as if any move she made or words she said was subject to his approval. Her almond-shaped eyes were exaggerated by her thin, drawn-in eyebrows. Matt pulled out a tube of chapstick and unscrewed the top. He puckered his lips and put it on, his cupid's bow glistening in the dead, pale, fluorescent lighting. I stared at his upper lip, the bulge and glow of it, until I heard my name. Matt is a tattoo artist, Jenny repeated loudly. I wondered how long the three of them had been watching me. Show him yours. I lifted my shirt to show them the tattoo on my stomach, a barn owl, feathers spread like fingers between my hip bones. I thought about the security cameras and what it might look like if my tiny gray figure lifted her shirt up for a couple of strangers. But since the camera couldn't see them, I hoped it would be innocuous, like flashing a ghost. The tattoo itself was bare, only line work done three weeks ago. It was my first big piece, an impulsive decision after a dramatic summer breakup. I had other tattoos, smaller ones I didn't show off. At first, I was attracted to changing the image of myself, placing tokens on my body to center who I was or where I'd been. After a while, I began to enjoy the dry, dull pain and the way each tattoo forced me to confront my own commitment to be hurt over and over again. The first tattoo, a set of stars trailing down my spine, was the most painful. After the artist inked the first line into my skin, a shroud of dread held me in the chair. I couldn't stop him. If I did, I'd be walking around my whole life with this symbol of weakness etched into my skin. When he dragged the needle down, he focused 100% of his attention on me, and I liked that. The tattoo scabbed over so badly that the color modeled. After that, I wanted to go bigger, more detail, and more sensitive places. Cursive words on the backs of my thighs, hopeless, romantic. A moon on my ankle where the skin was so thin the needle felt like splintered toothpicks rubbing frantically against the bone. 
The decision to get the owl tattooed right on my stomach was physical proof of my control over my body. The wings feathered out toward my hip bones, and the tail pointed down toward the most interesting part of my body, or at least the one that seemed the most interesting to other people. My mother lamented how it might stretch if I were ever to have a child, but I told her I wasn't worried about that. The outline had been excruciating. The closer the artist got to my pelvis, the more I clenched my abs against the pain. I'd made it through the worst of the thick line work. All that remained now was the color. The next day at work, Jenny told me Matt and Francis were interested in me, like I was a subject to be explored. When I asked what she meant, she simply said, They want to get to know you more. A week went by. Jenny gave me Francis's number. I called. A landline. Her voice sounded thick and warm. She asked if I was free that Saturday. When I arrived, I located the garden-level window of their apartment and checked my phone. I was already ten minutes late. Their door was hidden from the street. There were nail holes on the door jamb where the numbers were supposed to be. The frame was a gray, muted blue, painted with acrylic, the kind that peels off with age. I placed my index finger against a hole on the hinge side of the door, and a paint tag caught underneath my fingernail. The lip of it nudged in between the tip of my finger and the underside of my nail. The feeling of separation, of space between these two minuscule parts of my body, and the gummy yield of the acrylic filled my chest with a sense of relief. I pulled until the tiny string of paint snapped. Frances opened the door, the light catching her deep brown eyes. Come in, come in, she said. She grabbed my hand and pulled me into the house. Her hands were cool and small, like clutching a tiny animal. I felt as if I could squeeze too hard and somehow kill it. Hey, I said. Francis, right? I tried to smirk and she smiled back, revealing a slight space between her two front teeth. You can call me Frankie, she said. Up close, Frankie's skin was smooth and almost poreless. She had freckles across her nose and cheeks, and her teeth seemed unnaturally white. My teeth were slightly yellowed, and I did too many things on my body that made it feel old and tired, as though I were dragging all of the mistakes I'd ever made behind me with each step. Frankie closed the door and walked me in. My eyes struggled against the light. The entryway led into the living room, where a baby blue velvet sofa wrapped around two whole walls, oriented to a wooden entertainment center. A few hand-drawn pieces of art hung framed on the wall. I guessed they were Matt's work. I remember the distinct feeling of their adulthood. A home with furniture, kitchen utensils, bathroom cleanser, a wipe-off calendar. When we'd moved to the trailer, my mother got rid of most of our furniture, and I slept without a mattress for some time. It seemed to take years for us to recollect the things we needed. Sharp kitchen knives, a cutting board, a dented saucepan with tarnish crusted around the rim. Frankie's sparrow hands led me through the kitchen. A stack of old bills, a strangely shaped bag, a napkin holder, 
and some stains littered the circular dining room table. A hand-painted glass vase with dried willow branches leaned against the napkin holder. The clutter betrayed the neatness of the rest of the house. She pulled a chair out for me and I sat. Salt crumbs pushed into my elbows when I placed my arms on the table. I looked around. Aside from the high chair, there seemed to be no other evidence of a child. Matt is dropping the baby off at his mom's house. Frankie pulled out a chair but didn't sit. He should be back pretty soon. How old is your baby? I asked. I tried not to stare at her body, although Jenny had said they were interested in me. I didn't want to make the mistake yet of interpreting their friendliness as anything more than curiosity. Jet's about ten months old, she said. He just took his first steps last week. I didn't know if ten months was an exceptional time to learn how to use your feet to move your body. I stared at her poreless, makeup-free skin, thinking of what to say. I wondered how she felt about seeing me this close, an arm's length away, where she could see the mistakes in my makeup or the pimples underneath, could smell my breath or skin or hair. I wondered if she felt the same pulse of heat about our bodies, the way I felt it. My hand searched along the bottom of the table for something to pick off, paint or cardboard or wood splinters. When I didn't find anything, I picked at the skin of my thumb. Oh, I said, that must be exciting. She nodded and smiled, her eyes lit up affectionately. He gets more mobile every day. It's always changing, she said. I wanted to get close to Frankie. I always wanted that with girls, especially when they were older or seemed cooler than I was. I wanted to become her best friend, to feel her from every angle. As a result, I became nervous. I didn't want to fuck it up. There's a show tonight, she said. We can go out when Matt gets back. Cool, I said. Sounds good. How do you two know Jenny? Well, Matt and Jenny go way back, Frankie said. Knew each other in middle school and everything. The cuticle of my thumb began to bleed. I nodded. I met Jenny when I started dating Matt, she said. What was that, sophomore year or freshman? She asked as if I would know, like we were longtime friends with an intertwined history. Dust motes circled beneath the overhead light. God, it's been so long. It's like Matt and I are practically married. She laughed like she was trying to prove something. I laughed too. Eight years later, I'll look her up on social media and retrace the constellation of each event. I'll laugh as I scroll through picture upon picture of their life after me. Both hers and his. Status updates and in her bio. To have and to hold. Married since 2003. A decade plus of matrimonial bliss. The year of our life together erased. As if she'd never called me Lilith like she did the first night she saw me naked. As if nothing I'm about to tell you ever actually happened. Thanks so much, everybody, for uh, for for listening to this. That was that was El Nash, 
Animals Eat Each Other from Dezank Books, narrated by Casey Hollowell. Um, you can get that on TalkingBook.pub. That's TalkingBook.pub. You can get other books that we're releasing, like The Garbage Times, White Ibis by Sam Pink, um, Old Open, Alex Higley, House of Incest, Anais Nen, Noah Cicero, Blood-Soaked Buddha, Hard Earth Pascal, um, The Sarah Books, Scott McClanahan, Miriam Gerba's Mean. There's a bunch. Go check out our website. You're going to like it. It's it's so nice to uh, to be able to, to put these books out. They're really important to us. You know, these, these writers are putting out awesome work and the narrators are doing such cool shit to, to work with us and bring these books to life and audio and the publishers that make these books. Um, we really do love you guys. We're just trying to just add a, just add a little, little tiny modest extra texture to the community and the culture, um, meeting and talking to so many good people because of it. So yeah, we're a nonprofit audiobook publisher of Indie Lit in the mountains, North Carolina. Come see us. Um, we appreciate you. Love ya. Thanks. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I Door was passing over, and the window.